Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Archbishop Charles Chaput. He is well known to First Things. He was an Erasmus lecturer for us, and he's a contributor. Uh, recently retired as Archbishop uh, in Philadelphia, the author recently of Strangers in a Strange Land. He has a new book just out entitled Things Worth Dying For, Thoughts on a Life Worth Living. Welcome, Your Excellency. Uh, thank you very much, Mark. I'm happy and honored to be part of your discussion. All right. Well, your title suggests an immediate relationship between a good life and the willingness to die for certain things. Is that correct? That if there are not things in your life that ultimately you would give up your life for them, maybe it's not a good life. Is is that the uh, the implication? Uh, that's what I personally think and uh, am very confident is true. Um, I think that, that when it comes to actually dying for something or for someone, we might be um, less generous than we dream we are or think we are when we come to actually doing it. But I think unless we, we think there are people worth dying for and things, issues or principles worth dying for, our lives would be somewhat truncated and um, shallow. And I think many of us when we were children dream of being heroes. Those of us who come from the Christian tradition might have even dreamed about being a martyr. I know that I did that when I was in Catholic grade school. Mm. We heard the stories of the martyrs, and we all wanted to have enough strength and courage and love of God to do that. But it's interesting, though. You know, as I, as I get older, and our world has changed, and it's changed a lot since I was in Catholic elementary school, when you meet young adults today and ask them if they would be willing to be a martyr for the Church or for, for Jesus, I find many of them are, are very honest about raising the issue. Maybe they, they really wouldn't. Yeah. So there's actually been a kind of a change on uh, people's perception of themselves or of the possibility of being committed and loving that much if you're willing to die for someone or something. You know, when you mentioned a moment ago about being young yourself and thinking about giving your life up for something, I, I, I thought back myself that I, I don't know if I would have had the courage at that time to, you know, when I was four, 13 or 14 and could envision but I, but I wanted I wanted to be heroic, and that meant doing things that involved serious risk, and that the heroism would be in, in dedication to something. It seems to me that this is a crucial element of of growing into a adulthood. Do, do you agree? I, I agree, uh, and it's certainly an essential element of truly loving uh, a family. You know, for example, if you're the father or mother of children, uh, we expect our parents love us enough to be willing to risk their lives for us. Actually, our mothers do that when they give birth to us. 
But we really want parents who love us that much. And uh, if if we want parents who love us like that, we must also we should be willing to be parents who love their children and also their spouses in that kind of generous way. And you know, those of us who are serious about the meaning of a, a Christian vocation know that Jesus died for us on the cross because He thought we were worth dying for. Then mm. uh, to be a be His follower and to walk in His path means that we should be willing to die for Him and. Or, um, the gospel, you know, the fullness of his preaching and teaching. You begin the book with a city, Tel Aviv. Why Tel Aviv in Israel? Well, the, the, the Christian reflection always uh, begins in the Bible, with the Bible, and Tel Aviv is the capital of the Holy Land, uh, the, you know, the, the uh, political capital. Not more, I guess it's been moved to Jerusalem. I have to be thinking about the What's happened recently, but uh, Tel Aviv is, uh, you know, is a much more modern city than uh, Jerusalem. And I, in that first chapter, I compare one to the other and uh, talk about the importance, really, of Jerusalem being it's, you know, it's it's uh, the center of uh, the geographical center of Christian faith and Jewish uh, faith and and Islam. Yeah, finds Jerusalem being extraordinary significant for its own history and meaning. So it's really just a way of inserting my reflections into the scriptures and the Judeo-Christian tradition. I didn't know Tel Aviv was not a an old city. I'm, I'm ignorant there. Tel Aviv only, what's, 100 years old? There was a settlement there, of course, probably you know, goes back to the pre-Christian times. But in terms of being a modern city, yes, it was built when Israel became a country. You know, in the, in the early days, it uh, it was kind of where people settled because it was more difficult to settle in, in Jerusalem because it was a divided city. And there was a lot of empty space where Tel Aviv eventually rose up. So it is, it's a hugely beautiful modern city now. Yeah. And of course, Jerusalem is as old as old can be. How did your father's profession shape your sense of these things? One of the things I talk about quite a bit and talk about it in this book is the fact that I'm the son of a mortician. You know, I grew up uh, living in a funeral home. And those of us who've had that experience, I don't imagine there are many of us uh, in our country, uh, have a comfortableness with death and dying that may not be common. I think many people today I don't experience death at all until somebody in their family dies. And, uh, you know, the modern tendency to avoid uh, even seeing dead people, because, you know, we, we tend to want it to be very antiseptic. Yeah. Um, people avoid death. And uh, I used to invite my friends to my home, and uh, it was always an exciting adventure for them to go to a funeral home. And uh, when my father wasn't around, I would show them the, the casket room and the embalming room and things like that. I thought I wasn't happy with you when I did that. But they all found it very interesting and maybe a bit strange. And I, I talked about that in, in the book, in the chapter where I talked about death. You know, the things that we're dying for, it's important to do a reflection on death itself. And uh, one of the chapters of the book is really a kind of a focus on that second chapter of the book. When I was a poor graduate student, I needing to pay my rent, I, I did a little work for a mortician. Well, a guy who worked for a mortician, I'd, I'd tag along with him and help him, and we would we would retrie- retrieve bodies and take them to the, the mortuary for preparation. But it was always interesting when we would walk into a hospital in our dark clothing, our dark suits, uh, and go downstairs the basement. The morgue was down usually in the basement of the hospital, but... It was very odd when we would walk in and, and the nurses and administrators, uh, they'd, 
they'd sort of look at us and then look away. You know, we were we were kind of you know this was death, and we were outsiders. We we were just kind of not part of the whole the whole system. I think that relates to the sort of the sterilization process that you've been talking about. And you raise a question here uh, that is tough in these times for people. Your question is, what do we love more than life? Now, why are people having an increasingly harder time answering that question? Well, I guess there are many, many answers to that. Uh, I think it's primarily because people don't think very seriously at all anymore. Or think about serious matters very much. They uh, they avoid issues of transcendental, uh, transcendentals and the ultimate meaning of life. And uh, we're, we're very distracted by entertainment and the need to always find something new to look at or to be part of, you know, take a new vacation, go to a new place. Yeah. And uh, all those things may be very, very good. I, I don't want to be negative about all that, but it can keep us from reflecting seriously about the basic meaning of our lives and who we are and what our lives should be about. Uh, it's just, it's very common. You know, we have means of distraction today that didn't exist 10 years ago, 20, 30, yeah. 40, 50 years ago. You know, when I was a kid, we didn't have nearly as many distractions. We had plenty of them, but not nearly as many as we have today. And so we became readers and uh, we read the great literature of the Western world when we were very young. And uh, because we had time for that, and we don't have time for those kind of things anymore because we are so distracting ourselves with things that are, quote, entertaining. And we can uh, can lose ourselves to death, and uh, that, that death would be kind of an intellectual and spiritual death. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. You you discuss the Psalms and Ecclesiastes in the book. Are those two books the best sources of wisdom on death in the Old Testament, you think? Well, I think that they are the ones I would spend the most time talking about. For those of us who are Christians, uh, the New Testament and Jesus' discussion about the resurrection of the body and the meaning of that, uh, those would be in some ways more important reflections on death. And mm-hmm. Because for us, death is a gateway into a newness of life. Uh, but in terms of just uh, reflection on death itself and the sadness that it brings and, and the uh, fact that it can lead us to think that if this is all there is, our life isn't very very much worth living for. Uh, you find a lot of that, especially in, in uh, what we call the wisdom literature of the uh, Hebrew scriptures. And the book of Proverbs would be some of that, and the Psalms, of course. And I think it's, that's part of the, the Jewish tradition that's very important for Christians to, to know. 
because uh, you know we believe it's the word of God, and if, if God has given us His word, it's something He wants us to, to see and listen to and reflect on, and it can give us a, a, a commitment to live our lives more purposefully mm-hmm. if we think about that. You know, I don't know if you, in your own experience, but in in the uh, Catholic experience of. Uh, Art and the like from the Middle Ages. Uh, there are often pictures of uh, the saints holding a skull in their hand, or a skull being on the desk of some Christian um, saint who was writing or reflecting. And that really is part of the, the, the spiritual tradition of the Christian community. You know, to the, the skull represents, of course, death. It, it's not something for us to be ghoulish about, but to, it, you know, thinking about death can lead us to live life in a fuller and a more purposeful way. Mm-hmm. And it, it, if we don't do that, if we don't think about where is this all going to go, we can tend to live very shallow lives. Where does modern secular society get its wisdom about death? I mean, does it have any wisdom to offer? I don't think so. I mean, doesn't this leave in modern secular individuals a huge, a huge void in their heart? Death has to be dealt with, no? We're trying to avoid it. Uh, One of the things I mentioned in the uh, book is that two characteristics of human beings that's not characteristic of the rest of the uh, animal kingdom of the world, or mammals, of course, is that we uh, make tools and we bury the dead. Yeah. Uh, other parts of creation don't do that. Uh, there's there's something about our very nature that leads us to, in some deep way, respect the, the body, um, even after death. And we surround a death with all kinds of uh, traditions and rituals. But there's a tendency in the modern world just not to do that. I know that from my own experience as a son of a mortician. And I still have an interest in that, so I read articles that I, I see. And there's a whole lot more quickness in dealing with that today than was true in the past. I've even noticed that here in Philadelphia. And I've been, the, been in Philadelphia for the last 10 years. Where I come from in the, in the West, the, the period of preparation for the funeral would be a couple of days, and there would be a visitation at the funeral home, and then there would be a vigil service at the funeral home before the, the funeral at the church the next morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed that here, you know, most of those don't take place anymore. The, the um, There's a visitation of the dead, but it takes place right before the funeral mass in the church. Yeah. It's shortened, and, you know, and we know there's there's less burial today. Now people prefer to be turned into ashes and put on the shelf somewhere, and uh, people don't even see the dead prior to the funeral often times anymore. So there is a, a there is a fear facing death squarely. I think. You know, a few years ago, a, a good friend of mine died. He had cancer, and I, I actually stayed with him in his final couple of weeks. And he had many, many friends, uh, most of them academics and intellectuals of some kind. And they they came and paraded through the house. And they were thoroughly secular. I don't know what their private beliefs really were, but they didn't go to church. They didn't didn't go to temple or anything. They didn't lead spiritual lives. And I was stunned at how these intelligent and caring people, they really didn't have anything to say to him in his final days. They, they had nothing to offer. I would say to my friend, you know, my son and I, we're going we're gonna to be lighting candles for you for the next six months. And that didn't mean anything to him in, in any doctrinal way, but it meant a lot to him. It was, it was something that was an, an address to the reality uh, taking place here. But 
The others, for all their intelligence, Archbishop, they they had nothing. They had nothing. Yes. Well, two of the uh, most uh, significant moments of my own life were being present for the death of my, my mother, first of all, and also the death of my best friend just uh, a couple of years ago now. And uh, it's an extraordinary moment to be with uh, someone at that time. Um, I wasn't afraid in either situation. I was surprised by that. I, I thought I would be both afraid and, and uh, extraordinarily sad. But I was neither because, uh, you know, my mother was 97 years old and my best friend wanted to die because he had been suffering so much. But I, I, I just found it an extraordinarily important spiritual moment. But if, if I had thought that there's nothing more than than the moment a person stops breathing and that's all there is, yeah. I don't think I would have had nearly that same experience. Yeah. It would have been much sadder for one thing and, uh, and very empty. Yeah. You you say at one point that the word of God is quote thick with irony. Now, what why should God speak in anything but earnest, straightforward voices? Because he wants to he wants to convict us. Because he wants to speak in ways that that shake us up a bit and mm. uh, challenge us. And irony does that. Irony is an extraordinary way of coming to understand the truth about something in an indirect kind of way but a very dramatic kind of way that is convincing. And the, the scriptures are, are full of irony because human life is full of irony. We believe that the way to live is to die, actually. Jesus tells us that if we want to live, we have to learn to die to ourselves. It, it seems contradictory, hmm. but it's really a, a revelation of something very, very important. And uh, scriptures are full of things like that because uh, human life is... Is the mystery and it's, it's, it's surprising, and we're, we're tempted to settle for less than God wants us to actually have. And I think He, he speaks of some ways that challenge us and quicken our minds and our hearts. You refer to J.R.R. Tolkien, and you, you like his idea of referring to human beings as, quote, sub creators. Well, what does he mean by that? We all share. Uh, in God's ability to create. You know, the, the most perfect example, the best example of that is our parents, of course, who give their life to their children. But all of us are called to be creators. Even writing this book was an effort at, at creation, something that didn't exist before. And, uh, you know, the, the, the dignity of, of work, human work, um, is based on this notion that we're, we're sub-creators, that God uh, started started it all and continues, of course, to be present in uh, all of our sub but he gives us a share in that, which is one of the, the great joys of uh, human life, to be able to be part of creating something new. The forces that are coming down on people today that really kind of threaten their sense of themselves as sub-creators, participants in a larger a larger condition, a larger unfolding reality. One of the difficulties that you find is the, the deterioration of the family. Do you think when the family deteriorates, the world, life, death deteriorates? Well, everything does. Uh, everything goes through the family, as uh, St. Pope John Paul II said. You know, and all, all of our sociological studies demonstrate the importance of the family and, and the intact family of the father and mother 
uh, loving each other and loving your children. Even though, you know, in terms of political policies and the way we actually live our lives, it doesn't seem like we really embrace the family in such an important and significant way. I don't understand that. You know, I don't understand why political parties aren't focusing more on the the importance of the family. But I think probably in part is because there's that that whole part of our society that doesn't believe that the traditional family is is an intrinsic part of what it to be a human being. And because of that, uh, they actually try to destroy the traditional families you know of it, and uh, and depend on looser relationships that aren't biological and aren't so permanent as their version of what uh, a good family would be. So I, I, th- I think that everything falls apart if the family falls apart. And if we're not willing to, to die for our family, I don't know there's much else that we'd be willing to die for or to live for. Actually, hmm. and again, it begins with the uh, husband's wife, husband's love for his wife, and a wife's love for her husband. And we all want that in our parents in order to be secure and to know that there's a stable future for ourselves and to have brothers and sisters. You know, it's interesting that the, in, in the Christian tradition, we refer to our relationships with familial language. And we refer to fellow Christians as sisters and brothers, and we refer to God as uh, Father, and we talk about Holy Mother Church. That's that's because uh, family is such an important issue at the base of who we are as human beings, and who we are in our relationship with God and one another. Mm. You mention other kinds of movements that have some form of transcendence attached to them. You mentioned the French Revolution. You mentioned Nazi Germany. Now, those are cases in which you have members of those movements who are willing to give up their lives for something. What do we do with people who have that kind of devotion, but it is twisted and destructive? Well, I, you know, I don't know if in the French Revolution is anybody in that in the leadership that was willing to die for anything. Yeah. They were willing to let other people die. For, <laughs> and they actually took the lives of many other people. And the same thing's true about, you know, the uh, ideologies of the last century, you know, communism and, and Nazism and those kind of things. And you, you, people can die for the wrong reasons. You're, you're right about that. They can be radically committed to the wrong things. Uh, for example, the suicide bombers, who um, are so much a part of our reflections uh, today, uh, are willing to, to die for in their mind for, for God and for a, a cause. So I think, you know, you can... You can choose to die for the wrong things. That's why it's important to be very reflective and to, to be part of a thinking community and to, to read and to, uh, to become part of a community that shares thoughts and reflections in order for us not to go down the wrong path. You know, the thing, same thing can be true uh, for people who are, are even Christians, where they're willing to foolishly foolish die for the wrong kind of things in order to, to appear heroic. And that, that kind of way of, of living is, is not really seen in a positive way in the tradition of the church. You know, we have to be prudent people who are willing to die for the right things at the right time. But it would be it's considered foolishness to risk life when it's really not necessary to do that in order to maintain a commitment to the truth or to the good. What do you see among young people, uh, millennials and Generation Z, particularly those who have no religious affiliation? Are they similarly on an avoidance of death? Do they have any sense of dying for something at all? I, I don't know. I, you know, I don't actually hang out with uh, people <laughs> um, who, uh, who 
of the secular world and who actually are at the center of that, you know, who make the secular world part of the center of their lives. Yeah. I don't know how they can possibly uh, be committed in, over the long term to something as shallow as that. So I don't know how, I don't know what to say about them. Yeah. I have a lot of contacts with a lot of young adults, mostly, of course, people who are serious about being Christians. Um, but I don't, I find the young adult Christians don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about death as something you're going to get around to when they get older. I've often tried to get them to take death seriously so they'll take their own lives more seriously. But they, 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 they're captured by the same kind of distractions that capture so much of society today. Well, I, I have a thesis that the passions of the young, whether it be the woke revolution or racial justice or social justice or climate change, uh, that at least part of the passion, the thing that has cranked it up so much is this great void of any transcendence, uh, maybe combined with uh, the fear of death that, that leads them to the zeal that they feel for these different kind of utopian conditions. Do you think that there's something to that? Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think we all need to have something to live for, and if it's not, we don't live for the right things, we're going to choose other things. So I think it's that's the reason it's so important for us to be missionaries of the truth in the sense that we both embody and speak about the, what's really valuable. You know, and and they, these folks really are. They're, 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 even, you know, the, the younger people today have a passion fascination with socialism you know, in a way that my generation wouldn't because we saw how damaging it, it was in its manifestations in the 20th century. Yeah. But they don't have any historical memory of that because they don't, they don't read, they don't know history. Yeah. And so they, they get excited about it because on the surface it looks like a, a generous good. way of living. Yes, but I think, I think the, the formula that you offered a moment ago is a, is a good closing note that people want something to live for. And if they're not given the right things, they, they, they will find the wrong things. And so the book is Things Worth Dying For, Thoughts on a Life Worth Living. Uh, Archbishop Chaput, Your Excellency, thank you for joining us. Thank you very, very much, Mark. It's been a great talking to you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.